I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to the daily podcast edition of our program. Our guest today is Shauna Thomas. She is the executive for Quibi in charge of news. Welcome, Shauna. Hey, thanks for having me, Alex. Shauna, this is our first time covering an unconventional convention that was a virtual convention. What was your assessment of the Democrats' virtual convention this year? I mean, I think from a a TV presentation spectacle point of view, um, and conventions are spectacles, um, or they have been in the past, um, I think they did about as good of a job as you could. I could spend some time um, critiquing some of the choices, but it got stronger over each day. And I also think the... I think the Democratic Party probably learned some things that they need to do when and if we go back to real in-person conventions with thousands of people in one room and that kind of thing. And, you know, it's been talked about a lot, but the um, the roll call, which usually when it's conducted, people aren't really paying attention and it gets on television, but people are talking and there's all this stuff going on in the convention hall. Those individual videos from around the country that highlighted different types of people, ages and and experiences and everything else was a really interesting, touching moment about democracy. Um, And, you know, I tweeted about this. I came into that expecting to just be like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this this way? This doesn't make any sense. And I was I was charmed by it and I was touched by it. And so. I think the Democratic Party may have stumbled onto a couple of things to make the conventions feel more relatable to the audience in the future, um, even when they can go back and do some of the live programming with an audience that is that is actually um, that is usually the bread and butter of a convention. But I think they did about as good of a job as they could in the circumstances. Thank you. The the most powerful moment that you think if the Democrats are victorious this November, typically there are one or two moments both during the debates and the convention that are attributed to that momentum or building the momentum as a landmark moment. Were there one or two of those in the speeches that you heard? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think um, Michelle Obama's speech on Monday night and her tone and this sort of personal way that you were kind of invited to listen to her while she made a very clear case for why uh, Joe Biden would be a better president than President Trump was a standout moment. And I think it's a speech that will be studied in political communications classes uh, in the future. Um, I also think Barack Obama's speech, uh, the former president's speech, um, is also one of those moments that will be studied because it was in some ways, because it was so negative about the current president of the United States. And we just really usually, and this is a symbol of how our politics in this country have changed, don't see former presidents do that. You do see former presidents clearly talk at conventions, um, but usually it's all about shaping the narrative around the person who wants that seat in the future. And this was about, it was, it was squarely about how President Obama feels President Trump isn't up to the task. And it it, it, it symbolizes this idea that President Trump has has really changed our politics. Like we can can give him credit for that. 
Um, and the Obamas, especially Michelle Obama, likes to talk about when they go low, we go high. We've heard that a thousand times. President Obama and, and, and First Lady Michelle Obama didn't really go high. They went pretty low, but they felt like they had a reason to do that and that they had clearance to do that in our world. Um, but that, that was a shift in politics for America. And, and that's, that's interesting. Besides that unprecedented fact of targeting an outgoing former president, former first lady, um, messaging in that direct and directly negative way, what did you think of Vice President Biden's speech yeah. and how will that be remembered? I, I have to admit, I was a little nervous for uh, former Vice President Biden after watching the speeches over the last three days because former President Obama and the First Lady were so, uh, were so good and were able to capture the moment so well. I think we know that um, Biden has a history sometimes of going off teleprompter and rambling a little bit and a couple of other things that we tend to see uh, when he is speaking live and he didn't do any of that. And so I think he gave the best possible speech he could have. It um, Overall, I think a lot of the speeches were kind of dark, but his had a hopeful tone um, about what this country can be and, and light. And I think, uh, I think he did what he needed to do last night um, to one, reassure voters who are going? Who are going to vote for him? That that he is a guy who can, who can not only speak to people in a competent way, but also is is carrying and is still carrying the idea of hope with him, even though um, things seem pretty hopeless in this country right now. Um, and it was it was well produced, and so I think he did what he needed to do. And it's really hard today to find a lot of negativity about the speech, whether it be about the production or about what he actually said. And I think the whole point of these conventions, right, is to get media attention. And it's to create an infomercial for your candidate and for your party. And what you want to come out of these things is positive press coverage, right? And he got positive press coverage today. So, I, you know, we'll, we will see what happens in the debates when it is more an off-the-cuff experience and when he is on stage with President Trump. But Biden did a really good job last night. And the question as to whether in this very unique pandemic moment, the, the nation is desensitized to some of the more sometimes superficial sometimes substantive, but often symbolic interpretations of debates and performative analyses uh, rather than policy-driven analyses, although I'm sure that both Trump and Biden will have to grapple with nuance in moderators' questions during what we presume to be their three debates. One thing that has been mentioned, and it was mentioned during the 16 convention for the Democrats is there are one or two speeches or moments that have the power of being this timeless testimonial that shouldn't just run during the convention. 
which is not even necessarily when there's a peak in voter interest. It's just the beginning. It's not the culmination of that interest. So it didn't seem like last cycle the Democrats took advantage of the material produced during the convention. Um, I wonder how much of that will be revisited in the next few months. I mean, last night, Julia Louis-Dreyfus made the joke about Michelle Obama's speech and how they're going to extend the convention to five days and just run her speech on a loop. I think we can expect to see um, Michelle Obama's speech, President Barack Obama's speech, and and some of Biden and Harris's speeches in in ads. Um, I think that they, the Democratic Party, but also PACs campaigns is going to use this, the, the moments from the convention, because it was very clear it connected at least with the base of the Democratic Party. Um, I think those, it's hard to ignore the power of those two people. And I don't mean to short shrift uh, Senator Kamala Harris or former Vice President Joe Biden, but in the end, and I've, I've been thinking about this for a long time, President Barack Obama is still the head of the Democratic Party. He is still the 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 figurehead. And I think there have been a lot of base Democrats who've been clamoring for him to say something. And now that he is, I think there are a lot of different parties that are going to use what he said there and probably use what he said at John Lewis's funeral um, to, to try to get that message of this former president who is still beloved by a lot of people in the Democratic Party in front of as many people as possible to also push them into voting. Um, those are those are the two speeches to make your ads out of. And then what about the lay testimonials? Um, there were speeches by a 90-something World War II vet, lifelong Republican, NRA member who said, Trump has abandoned the country um, by a young woman whose uh, father was a Trump supporter until his death by COVID. And she attributed that death to misinformation, disinformation from the president. Um, It seems like there were at least a handful of Americans who could be very strong surrogates for the campaign this fall. I think so. I, it would be interesting to see. So hmm. there is an opportunity. I hate to say use these people, but fine. I'm going to say use these people out in the world because because really Joe Biden and Kamala Harris can't travel that much. And they're not going to because the DNC, and I think this campaign wants to show how they are different than President Trump's campaign and how the RNC is conducting themselves because of COVID. They wanna be the party of, of science and medicine and responsibility, right? But if you have, if you have created this kind of connection to some of these, for lack of a better term, normal people in the world, I would. I do think the DNC would be remiss if they didn't try to make more sort of digital connections using those people, you know, as as ideal precinct captains. Um, you know that I believe the woman who talked about her father, um, who who was a Trump supporter and then went to the karaoke bar and then subsequently, sadly, died of COVID nineteen. Um, I think 
was she based in New Mexico, I believe? She should be holding- Arizona. She was Arizona. They should be making sure she is once a week doing Zoom calls with people in Arizona to talk about COVID-19, to talk about their experiences, to talk about voting, to talk about what they want out of their state, what they want out of their country. They they effectively created brand ambassadors over the course of the week in a way that is, I think, actually very hard to do with conventions the way they have been done in the past. Because one, the people in the hall, when you're watching those kind of videos, or even when sometimes those people are talking during the day, no one's paying attention. Um, we were forced to pay attention because of how this particular convention was being broadcast. And they, they have many ambassadors to share their story again, and then also try to encourage other people to think about their own lives, compare it to their story, and then try to convince them to go vote. Um, and I, I hope the DNC is thinking in this fashion, that they're not just thinking about this convention as four nights of just television, but they're thinking it is, of it as like ways to jump off, especially because of social media, especially because people are at home, especially because everyone's used to Zoom calls. Use all of those to create kind of mini tentacles to keep talking to actual human beings. Um, because there's only so much that, that Biden and Harris can do, um, especially because even if they hold events and they hold Zoom meetings, they're not as great on television as if, you know, Biden is having huge rallies in Wisconsin. So I think the, the fact that the convention had to go smaller gave you these opportunities to highlight these people in a way that forced us to pay attention. Because if you ask me who... The human, the real human stories from the 2016 conventions, both of which I attended in purpose, if you ask me what they were, I do not know. I do not remember, not going to lie. Um, but I am going to remember that woman. I am going to remember the kid who stuttered um, yesterday and talked about how Joe Biden helped him. I am going to remember that vet you just talked about. So they need to figure out how to, to capitalize upon that. Shauna, perhaps this was the truncation and conciseness of the condensed speeches, uh, but there was really a direct appeal to voting, partly because of the inaccessibility and the intimidation and obstacles generated as a result of the pandemic. But I can never recall such a focus on that every night. And I don't know that in 2016, every speaker was directing the viewers and the convention hall to texting for instructions on how to vote. In conservative media, this was attributed to potentially a lack of enthusiasm around the Democratic ticket. In reality, I'm sure the Republicans in the days ahead will likely do that too. But was that remarkable to you or just sort of the nature of these things? No, it wasn't. It wasn't remarkable, but what it did make me think is that they they lo- they learned the lessons of 2016, and that there there are multiple states that Hillary Clinton lost that that went for Barack Obama, and you can see in the actual numbers of of how people voted, how many people voted, that there were votes left on the table. I think what it also made me think of, and this is 
my analysis, um, not the Democratic Party's, not Joe Biden's campaign, is that I don't think these last four nights of the convention, especially because of the focus on voting, were about trying to um, convince sort of soft independents or Republican voters to vote Democrat. Um, I know that there were some prominent Republicans featured over the course of the four nights, and I think the Democratic Party was showing this idea of big tent unity and that we can come together um, for the country. But I really, I, I think that if you are right now someone, and I'm sure maybe people will write in and disagree with me, but if you're right now someone who is paying enough attention um, to be thinking about voting, but you are on the fence about whether to vote for President Trump or former Vice President Joe Biden, you're actually not going to vote for Joe Biden. Um, but what they do know is that there is this untapped resource of either first-time voters or second-time voters who chose to sit it out in 2016, that if you can get those numbers back up to where they were in 2012 for Barack Obama, Joe Biden wins. And so I think part of that focus was all you people, and Michelle Obama basically said this, all you people who did not show up and vote at all in 2016, you need to think real hard about that. Um, because I think that's the extra votes Joe Biden needs to win are those people. Question, especially because you help lead a digital platform and yeah. its news and politics coverage. What is your understanding of the disconnect between social media and the real world. This is often something cited in political science literature increasingly and by reporters and political junkies themselves. But how pervasive is that disconnect? And because you were just talking about the voters who may be on the fence or are part of that sliver that at least the media tell us are the small cohort of undecideds uh, how, how pervasive is that disconnect? Um, as in, as in the amount of attention given over to politics and news on certain social media platforms versus like whether people are re like real actual human beings are actually paying attention. Is that right? Sort of and, what you and, mean? Exactly. And the perception of polarization and the reality of polarization. Got it. So I think, Number one, I think it kind of depends on which platform we are talking about. I think Twitter is a self-fulfilling prophecy. There are not a ton of, you know, percentage-wise, when you compare it to something like Facebook, there are not a ton of people on Twitter, at least not Americans. It's a little different internationally. Um, and I also think there are a lot of media and personalities and journalists on Twitter who sort of create this feedback loop. <laughs> um, that that isn't necessarily reflective of the real world. Um, but I think active engaged users on Twitter who are also the type to be watching watching political content um, don't necessarily tell you the full picture. Not that any social media platform is gonna tell you the full picture. I think with something like Facebook, the difference is one, there's a ton more Americans on Facebook than Twitter. But two, um, the ability to sort of wall yourself off on Facebook. And I'm not going to talk about the alt algorithm because I don't have enough knowledge to credibly talk about that. But this idea that you can have these sort of closed groups and closed conversations that aren't necessarily, um, that, that, that 
aren't necessarily welcoming to other people who have a different point of view does, I think, contribute to some of the polarization that you're talking about. Because if your, if your sort of social life experience is all kind of related to things you already agree with and in groups of people that you already agree with, then, and, and, and none of the sort of different ways of looking at things enter into that, it creates sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy of, of a loop of information that constantly backs up what you already think. But because these groups are closed off, it is really hard to insert any other points of view in there. Um, and I think that that actually does contribute to kind of the divisiveness in our society. I don't know what to do about that. And someone, it would be very easy for someone to come back at me and say, that's how, actually how people live in a lot of places. We tend to, in real life, once when we used to have real lives and actually talk to human beings and see our friends, um, you, your friends tend to be like you. you. People tend to live in places that have other similar people to them. They tend to run in sort of closed off groups. So in some ways, I think Facebook is a lot like life, but at least in sort of real life, there are possibilities of overhearing other conversations that may be hard to ignore. I think it's hard to, I think it's pretty easy in social media world, especially in stuff like Facebook, um, to, to ignore and shut out other points of view and dissension and other things that make you think. Um, and figuring out how to break that, one, I think political campaigns, um, one, feed off of that, but two, it, it does make it so that they um, can't necessarily reach all of the people that they want to reach. But I actually think it's kind of emblematic of life, which may be depressing. What do you think? Well, look, I think your analysis is spot on. Uh, the, the reality is there's very little subtext or subliminal messaging if you see the evidence on the Lincoln Project, which is ostensibly a pro-Biden organization, an anti-Trump organization, or if you see the Biden campaign ads, or if you see the Trump campaign ads, and we know that he rented the front page of YouTube for these last several days, and it continues to be featured on YouTube. So it is like we are living on two very distinct planets in the social media ecosystem. Uh, but it, if you were just to listen to Biden's speech, it was perhaps most remarkable in that it confounded those perceptions of our reality and the fact that the messaging is in those separate camps. I mean, it, it was the one, he seemed to be the one candidate that the Democrats could nominate that would perhaps bend bend that you know possibly open it up a little more and bridge to other types of people um yeah and i think that is part of the reason i mean i think biden gave something in his speech for everybody um but i think that's part of the reason why he won south carolina and i think that's part of the reason why especially older black voters in south carolina um along with from uh, along with representative jim clyburn's endorsement went for 
Joe Biden because they were trying to figure, because black people are incredibly practical and they were trying to figure out, okay, who are a lot of different people going to vote for? Who isn't going to scare anybody? And, um, and they went with Joe Biden. Um, and I think Joe Biden has known that is his power in this situation for a long time. And they figured out a way to communicate that to people. And I mean, as we saw this week, it, it got him the nomination. Um, but I also, I don't think we can pretend that the divisions in this country are something that is uh, pres- just President Trump related or um, are, or are short term. And I think COVID-19 has made that really clear in terms of how it's affecting different types of people, different demographics of people. And so while I see what you're saying, and I think Biden's speech and, and his campaign have to try to walk this line of I am accepting to everybody, um, and, and that may politically end up getting him the presidency, it, the fact that we have all these divisions in this country will make his job that much harder and he will have a lot of different types of people to answer to. And, you know, and they say they will try. Um, but this, the fix or, or this not, isn't, right? the, the fix for this isn't the president of the United States necessarily. Right. And, or not, you probably like me were tuning into C-SPAN's coverage of past conventions and speeches and what was remarkable about the 2008 speech of John McCain and the speeches supporting his nomination and candidacy was the, the character and decency. You wondered how anyone could vote against him. Mm-hmm. I think we're in a different political environment now where Donald Trump's gross negligence uh, has resulted in death and despair, and there is a direct correlation and, and, and that means restoring not just the soul of the country, but the dignity and life um, of the country. I think we're in a different place, but... We are. We have Our to... politics has have totally changed. Biden's is an effort, just as a final question to you, Shauna, Biden's is an effort to recreate a simpatico, in his words, um, a soulfulness in our politics that that did for many decades marginalize constituencies of the electorate, um, but he is seeking to reunite us anew within a more inclusive society, especially in response to systemic inequity, racial injustice, and the corruption of this Trump administration. So the, because you've covered so astutely our politics, do you think that Given the nature of his argument, he needs to spell it out more directly and actually, if not nominate a shadow cabinet, a would-be cabinet of his administration, make some more direct appeals to voters based on how he foresees making that unity administration. Does he have to get more specific in these next weeks? think he does. I mean, there has been some specificity. I wouldn't say we saw it over the course of this past week, but I don't think that's what conventions are about, to be honest. Um, but I do think that there, there is, 
there's this problem in the polling that I keep seeing, right? And I'll get to your answer, but just bear with me for a second. And it is this question that a lot of polls, at least national polls, ask about would you rather, like, if you say you're voting for Joe Biden, okay, are you voting for Joe Biden because you like Joe Biden? Or are you voting for Joe Biden because your vote is actually a vote against Donald Trump? And his numbers on almost every poll I've seen that asks like a version of this question are lopsided for I'm voting against Donald Trump, right? I think that that those numbers are part of why the message over the course of this last week was about voting um, and, and the importance of voting and that in voting for something because the enthusiasm gap there is is actually is an issue and i think one way to help solve that issue is what you are saying which is be more clear and direct about how you are going to govern this country and what you are going to do about things i do think this this four days of conventions was uh, tackled sort of issues of systemic racism and a bunch of other things pretty head-on but in a very like rhetoric-y kind of way um but I do think he has to figure out like what are the, and, and maybe this is out there and I am not paying attention, but like what are the five things I'm gonna do on, uh, in the first hundred days? So that gives people something specific to latch onto. Um, so as to excite some of those people who may not see voting as something that ends up affecting them. And, and if, if he can say in the first hundred days, and it, it's hard to make these kind of promises because what's going to happen at Congress based on the election, I don't know. Um, but in the first hundred days, I'm going to do this, 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 and this so that you're giving people like, okay, on top of the idea that I don't want President Trump to be our president, which may not be enough to get them to go to the polls. I know that if Joe Biden is elected, um, I, that he is going to try to do this thing in the first hundred days does become important. And I think like one of the lessons to be learned from Elizabeth Warren's campaign that worked really well for her, even though it was, it was a joke, but it was a joke because it's kind of true, was that idea of like, she's got a plan for that. That, that um, influenced the cultural zeitgeist. It is going to stick with her for the rest of her life. She made a joke about it this past week. But there was something about, oh, wait, I'm prepared. And I'm not only prepared, I have this like 10 step plan about how I'm going to do that thing that I do think people kind of liked, even though she did not win the nomination. They have to figure out what is their version of that so that the thing people start to say is other than just Joe Biden isn't Donald Trump is Joe Biden isn't Donald Trump and he's going to do this. And I, I think that will help deal with some of the enthusiasm issues with Joe Biden. Um, but I haven't seen them totally, and by them, I mean his campaign, totally latch on to like, here are Joe Biden's plans and message that in a way that's easy for people to repeat. It doesn't mean they don't have plans. I'm just not sure the messaging of those has really like broken through yet. That's super that's insightful. That's super insightful. And I think synthesizing that for the debates will be crucial. And we will see the limit and possibility of what is considered negative cognition in politics. Voting against as opposed yeah. to voting for 2018 was one model that would seem to favor the Democrats in that 
Shauna Thomas, thank you so much for your insight today. Oh, thank you so much for the questions. This was interesting. I appreciate it.